0: I think this decade is going to be transformative, but we're still too early to say exactly where this ends up or how quickly this goes.
1: Hello there. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Kate Wallet, who I have recently started using as my mobile wallet for Bitcoin. Now, Cake Wallet is a non-custodial wallet, which means it protects both your security and privacy because it doesn't share important information with unnecessary third parties. With Cake Wallet, not only can you hodl Bitcoin, but you can easily pay privately with Monero. It has advanced features for Bitcoin, including coin control and automatic address switching. The app is also designed to make it very easy for you to set up your wallet and back up your keys. If you want to find out more, please head over to CakeWallet.com or search for Cake Wallet in the Apple or Google app stores. Next up, it is BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin and wider crypto industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty in finding a payment service provider that understands Bitcoin and they reached out to me. So I've moved all my business banking across to BCB and I could not be happier. BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. They have an amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now, listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this. If you're looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you may want to become a BCB customer. If you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up is Compass Mining. And they are not just a sponsor, I am a customer of theirs too, and I am mining Bitcoin with Compass. I've been mining for over 10 months, and I've already mined over 0.7 Bitcoin, which has more than paid off two of my S19s. Anyone can start mining with Compass Mining, and to help you, Compass has launched the Compass Score to help you make informed decisions about your next mining purchase. The Score highlights how good each ASIC deal is based on a number of factors, such as price, mine age, difficulty, hashing power, and the current Bitcoin price. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I am happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. If you are interested in mining and you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C O M P A S S M I N I N G.io. Also, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. I'm still only buying. Come on, look at this market. It is the time to buy. We're not sellers right now, are we? Now, I am also using the Gemini app for buying these dips. And I have also set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy. And Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of What Bitcoin Did, All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Hi Lynn. Hey. It's been a while. Yeah. (laughs) People won't know. We've... uh recorded in two shows today, so we should let them know. This will be the second one, so it makes sense. Um, Okay, got a super interesting topic I want to get into with you today, which is uh, uh, central banking. And and one of the reasons I want to talk about this with you is, firstly, you know about everything, so um, that's great. And secondly, um, a lot of Bitcoins talk about how Bitcoin can replace central banks. And central banks are often seen as the root of all evil with money um and i half agree at times but i also want to understand where they came from and you know, i i assume there's some good sides to having central banking and i want to understand what we lose if we lose central bank so i kind of wanted to do cover as much of I, uh, of this i can with you to to really understand what the trade offs are for replacing central banks with bitcoin if that is something that ever happens you, you're okay with this
0: yeah happy to discuss it
1: cool so I know you've done the research on this in the past, but what was the background before we had central banks? Uh, I know Nick Carter's written about this a lot, the era of free banking, but I don't know a lot about this. Can you kind of explain to me and educate me? So that depends on
0: what region of the world you focus
1: on. Okay. Uh, Basically, if you go back long enough,
0: you get back to, you know, barter systems, uh, kind of monetary goods arising, people keeping track of ledgers, kind of the invention of money. And then you had state money where, You say, okay, we want to simplify commerce by having like uh, standard amounts, Uh, and so you know the emperor would put his face on a gold coin, uh, and that you know makes it harder to uh, forge, and it also it's standardized, so uh, that that kind of uh, you know greases uh, the wheels of trade, Um, and then you know throughout Europe and other places you start to have natural banking arise where you know you don't want to have all your gold with you or all your silver with you. You deposit it, you know, and then you get a receipt for it. And then that receipt becomes a proxy for that gold. It, it's more convenient. Uh, there's ways maybe if you lose it, you can get it replaced. You know, you can maybe prove your identity and get it replaced. So it's, it's more secure, especially if you're transporting over ships, for example. You know, you don't want to lose all the gold at the bottom of the, of the ocean. So you started to have these notes uh, arise. And so you essentially had banks arise. And because gold is not very portable... It tends to centralize. There's economies of scale of, of, secure, of securing it, especially because governments have an interest in eventually centralizing it. And so you had banks arise, and then inevitably you got towards central banks, where they would arise in Europe. And so one of the earliest examples is Bank of England that arrived, uh, was created in the late 1600s. Uh, and so the whole premise there is that you know, you have a central bank that works as the bank for the government, uh, and then in different forms, because it's not just one type of central bank, there's different types of central banks, and some of them will also be lenders of last resort uh, to other banks. And so maybe you want to shift to American history though at that point of, of co- talking about kind of where
1: they arose to the modern state. Well, I probably want to ask you a little bit about the the uh, Bank of England, the First, uh, Central Bank, um, being from England, I'd want to know a bit more. But am I right in thinking that came about because of war?
0: Well, when you go back far enough, yes. Yeah. Um, these things tend to arrive in war and, and, and basically come about due to just changes in institutions. But when you go back to that point, I mean, you, you said I know everything. I don't know detailed European history. So there are people that can go way more into the histories of, of Central Banking in Europe in particular. There are, there are historians that can go way more into that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I know that would be asking, what I bet you do know, but you do. All right, so let's let's do American history. The era of free banking, um, as you said, that was a, a period where banks arose because people had money, they wanted a place that deposit it. So I guess somebody one day came up with the idea of, hey, I'll look after and guard your money and uh, keep it in our safe and protected, and you don't have to keep it in your home, which I guess protected people. Um, and then the uh, the issuance that you, the the credit note or the paper that, that I guess that was the start of paper money.
0: Well, in the United States, we had a, a couple of different eras. Okay. Ironically, we never, unlike the Bank of England, we didn't have this like, continuous institution. We had eras where we had a central bank and then didn't have a central bank and then had one again and then didn't have one. Okay. Uh, and so basically in, in the United States, gold and silver uh, from nearly the beginning were, were money with the Coinage Act, where gold and silver were recognized as legal tender. Uh but then you know what institutions want to do with that uh was kind of left to them. And so in the very beginning, the central bank was very limited. Uh and there was actually discussions among the founding fathers of whether or not they even wanted to have a central bank. And so Alexander Hamilton was the proponent of it, whereas Jefferson was against the idea. Uh and Hamilton's faction won out. And so they had a central bank with a 20-year charter. Uh and it was very limited. It was not a lender of last resort. It was not, you know, the, the Federal Reserve of today. It was a fairly small institution, and its purpose was basically to do banking activities for the, the federal government. Right, okay. And they couldn't even, for example, they couldn't buy government debt. Uh, they, were, they were very limited what they could do. And it had a 20-year charter, and eventually, uh, you know, by the time that charter came up, Hamilton was no longer around. He had died in that duel. Uh, and the political winds had changed, and that had expired. Uh, but then, uh, after the War of 1812, there was a period where there was not any, any bank, and then there was, there was, you know, turmoil, and they started another central bank. So you had bank number two, and it had another, like, 20-year charter. Okay. So you had another central bank, and again, it was very limited. And then there were political forces against it, uh, and eventually that also was let to expire. And then that, after that is when you entered the long period of free banking. And the way that essentially worked, and those banks had existed during the central banking period as well. And the way that essentially worked is that a bank would have gold and silver deposits, and it would, as we described, it would issue notes against them. Uh, And you essentially had a separation between state and money, where, you know, gold and silver were nature's money, and then there were claims on those, but those were generally, these were these private uh, issuances. And the ability for that note to be recognized was based on the reputation of that bank. And so, for example, a large New York bank you know, that might be a rather liquid and widely accepted note. It's it's well-trusted, even pretty far away. Because people know that's, you know, that's the the note from the Bank of New York, uh, and you'll be able to redeem that. Whereas if there's like a note issued from some obscure bank, you know, out West, maybe, that might be far less liquid. People might only be willing to buy that at a discount, because they know that it's going to be frictions to ever kind of redeem that. Uh, And so you had kind of competing issuances of money, uh, that was ultimately representing claims on gold and silver. Uh, but of course, you had to trust the solvency of that institution, uh, and you had to trust the the liquidity and the scale of that institution compared to where you were in the country.
1: Was, was the denomination of those notes in dollars at that time, or is it just a, an amount of gold?
0: Uh, it was, dollar was defined as an amount of gold and silver. That right, was back okay. in the Coinage Act of the late 1700s. So, okay. yes, they, they were uniform in, in, in that aspect, but they were all differing in terms of their creditworthiness.
1: Right, okay. And did they have different denominations of notes? Or could you have like a weird note which represented just what your holding was? Like, could I have a $1,300 note?
0: Yeah, different banks could offer essentially what they want. There was no standard amounts. And again, there's, there's probably historians that can go through all the, the yeah. detailed nuances of, of what kind of things they have. But essentially, you, what you had was private money.
1: Right. Okay. Okay. And, and as people travel around the country, they had different notes, different representations, and depending on who that bank were, where there was, there different levels of trust. Yes. I wonder how those reputations were built, though, because there would be no internet. Well, some, I mean, yeah, basically was much slower. No Yelp.
0: Yeah. It was really, I mean, really it was about the centralizing forces. So banks in New York, these large capital centers, uh, you know, those are the ones that would, that would have a reputation. And as you got under the periphery, it'd be very, very hard to build a reputation.
1: Right, okay, so how did we get to the stage where we had, essentially, the Fed?
0: So that came about in the early 1900s. And the the preceding of that was there was a crisis in the very early 1900s, and you had a a banking failure. So the problem with this, the challenge with the system, there's a couple issues. Uh, American free banking was a lot messier than, say, Scottish uh, free banking. Uh, and one way, to, and that, that, that's actually one of the things that central bankers today will look on the period and say, look how messy that was. There were tons of bank failures. Essentially, what they were doing was doing free banking in a, what was an emerging market. I mean, America in the 1800s was we were expanding across this continent. And also you had generally, they were limited to operate within states, right? So they didn't have a lot of uh, geographical diversification on their lending exposures, things like that. Plus, it's, you know, just due to technology, you couldn't, you know, because it was all built on trust, you couldn't audit them really, really well. You right. couldn't just say, well, you know, give me your proof of reserves, right? That's hard to do. Okay. And so there were all these shortcomings and you would have number, a number of bank failures on a regular basis. And you had a particularly bad one in the early 1900s. And, it, you know, for part of it, it looked like the whole system might just come crashing down. And eventually you had a couple of bankers led by J.P. Morgan like the person, not the institution, like the actual yeah. J.P. Morgan. Uh, essentially, J.P. Morgan worked as a central bank. He was the lender of last resort. He's like, this thing's not going to go down. I will backstop this thing. And essentially, what you had was a centralization problem. If if the bank system of the U.S. came down to what J.P. Morgan was going to do, that was perceived as a problem. And so the opportunity was taken, okay, after that resolution, after that crisis was resolved, they said, how can we institute some sort of lender of last resort. And that's when they shifted towards the, the, the idea of a Fed. And that came about, you know, a few years later, 1913. And, you know, the initial, the, the original uh, bank in the United States was, uh, like, uh, Hamilton, he centered that around Bank of England. So that's always kind of been the model for America. And they kind of recreated it again, but they, they did it in a somewhat more decentralized way. So... Rather than having some central institution, they created this public-private partnership, where it's, it's almost like this complicated proof-of-stake model. And that's the creation of the modern Federal Reserve, and so ever since 1913, we've had this continuous central bank. So it's the longest-lasting central bank in the United States, uh, and although their charter's somewhat changed over time, it's a relatively continuous organization.
1: And, and these banks back... Uh... When they first originated, did they offer very similar services that they do now? We've mentioned they would hold your gold for you and protect it, but they would offer what credit and loans yeah. and.
0: Yeah, and the such. combination of, of custody yeah. and and offering different types of, of credit and services like that.
1: Okay. And how would interest rates be set just by the bank locally?
0: Yeah, basically, if the, it's natural supply and demand. So if you want more deposits, you have to uh, offer higher rates. Uh, and then lending, of course, is based on. Uh, you know, just the, the market at the time. So you'd have, instead of a central entity determining rates for the whole region, you'd have different rates uh, based on different regions. So a rate for one region might be very different than a rate for another region.
1: But I guess because uh, the banking sector wasn't digitized at that point, you couldn't offer fractional reserve banking because you could only offer loans based on what you were holding within the bank.
0: Well, fractional reserve banking is often misunderstood to mean that they have more liabilities than assets. Okay, It just means, like so for example, unless they're insolvent or fraudulent, they have more assets than liabilities. They have positive bank capital, but say they don't have all the gold on hand to redeem all deposits at the same time if there were to be a bank run. Because some some of it's loaned out. Some of it's loaned out. So, So the bank has, they have gold, but then they also have uh, basically, loans to, on real estate or things like that, that for them is an asset. Okay. Uh, and so they're doing basically a duration kind of a mismatch, right? So they're, they're arbitraging the difference between short-term lending, which is what depositors are doing when they deposit their, their gold and silver, versus what the bank is doing when they're making these longer and higher-yielding le- loans.
1: But would they have to hold minimum reserves?
0: Uh, that's where you had a pot of different regulations, so different states would have different requirements, right. and so yes, there'd be different different kind of areas of, of regulation for how much gold you had to hold, um, and how often they'd be checked and things like that. So why did banks
1: fail at that time? What was the general kind of reasons?
0: That's, that's where you're going to get different views from different okay. people. Central bankers would say the whole thing's unstable, and proponents of free banking would say, uh, and I t- tend to align with that view because it, we have other examples of, of jurisdictions, like I mentioned, Scotland, where it worked better. They would say the specific set of regulations was unfavorable. Banks were you know very kind of geographically constrained in terms of their area of operation, uh, and it was essentially an emerging market environment. And so there was a whole host of reasons why banks would fail, but the, the American version was kind of this pseudo-central banking, I mean, pseudo-free banking, rather than like a fully free banking environment. And it was just kind of a a new
1: environment overall. Okay. So, 1913, it was established. What was their kind of mandate? Essentially, to be lender of last resort. Uh, So, if there were to be a
0: large run on banks, and if there was a a credit contraction, they could be the, the... instead of going to J.P. Morgan and saying, hey, do you want to bail us out this time, there would be an institution whose job was to have reserves to uh, kind of backstop liquidity if you were to get a, a kind of a nationwide contraction in credit.
1: Right. Where would they, how would they be capitalized, though? Was that just from taxation?
0: Uh, they'd be, yeah, they're, they're essentially the pseudo-government private organization. So they were capitalized by... Uh, the banks of the system. So it was literally a proof of stake system, not on a blockchain obviously, Uh but basically the the different banks around the country owned shares in this. Uh, And then also the federal government, they would appoint some of the leaders as well. So you basically had representation from the people, and then you had representation from the banks. And so you had this kind of merger of public and private. And so they were capitalized from the banks uh, and capitalized from the government to backstop that. but then over time, the federal government came in and kind of pulled some of the power towards themselves. And so, for example, after the crisis of 1929, um, you had another set of things set up. So you had FDIC insurance, uh-huh. number one, and then number two, they took the gold from the Fed and transferred it over to the Treasury. So the, the Federal Reserve had, you know, it's, it, the ironic thing is the Federal Reserve is not really federal and it has no reserves. <laughs> it, it, so at that point, basically what they do is they create reserves, they don't have reserves. They create reserves uh, out of thin air. That's the kind of the fiat system. Uh, Even though back then they were still on a gold standard, they didn't actually have gold uh, owned
1: to them. Hmm. Okay. That sounds like the first crack. Yes. Hmm. Okay. So essentially, the role of the central bank was to give stability to the banking system nationwide? In theory, yes. In theory. Did it work?
0: I think it depends, again, who you ask. So there are a number of people that would point out that contractions became more spread out and less severe after that point in American history. Um, but I think also you, at, you came at the cost of long-term stability. So you basically shorten these contractions, but then you lead to constant kind of debt accumulation over time because you're kind of essentially controlling interest rates. And I think if you go to people normally and you say, are price controls a good thing? Most people say, no, but this whole system kind of relies on controlling the price of money. So you're doing kind of one price control that affects every other market. And there are relatively few markets where that, that would be true. So controlling the price of energy or controlling the price of money, for example, are the, some of the few things that ripple out to everything else.
1: Right. Okay. Okay. And the FDIC, again, what was their mandate at the time? Because I know it's expanded. Um, and I, I was tracking the FDIC back in um, a couple of years ago when we did a four-part series about Mnuchin, and we were looking at what happened with uh, One West and how essentially the FDIC enabled banks to be quite reckless in their lending. Um, has there, I'm assuming that is like an expansion of their mandate over the what 100 years since this existed.
0: To some extent, I mean, the general idea with FDIC insurance is to provide depositor insurance. So if the bank fails, they still get their money protected by some sort of common entity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, the point is to deter run on the banks. So if you game theory and there's no bank insurance, if if banks are highly levered and they start to fail, the, the correct thing to do is go and get your money out right away. Mm-hmm. And if everybody does that, then it fails quicker. Yep. Uh, so they want to de decentivize people rushing in to get their money out. Um, but the point, then the problem is that they have to be able to backstop that. And so uh, that, that kind of, and it also makes it so that you can get away with more risk because there's, there's a backstop there. Uh, so, but a lot of us take for today that you put money in a bank and you're relatively stable and it's, it's because of FDIC insurance, but that can only really work when the, the underlying money itself can be created.
1: There's a limit on FDIC insurance, right? Is it up to like 250000
0: Yeah, that's what's expanded over time. So they, and like Over time, they would change that limit. But yes, there, there's limits on how much. So it basically rewards smaller and medium-sized depositors
1: rather than the, the largest depositors. Interesting. So it's one of the few scenarios where the smaller guy is better protected.
0: Yes, but then there's... So that's why, for, for example, larger pools of capital would rather be in something like a treasury.
1: Right, I, see, yeah, I that, see. That's
0: why there's a market for treasuries because you're you're backed up, you're you're directly backed up by the federal government.
1: Risk risk free, unless you're Russian. Yes. Yeah, uh, I think we have something similar in the UK. I think we're protected up to about I think it's like eighty five thousand pound. Is it? I think it's something like that. Yeah, about eighty five thousand pound, and I'm pretty sure that came in again after the 2008 financial crisis because it looked like uh, Lloyds and I think Royal Bank of Scotland were going to fail. So. They have a similar protection there, but it's, it, it still has its limits, um, which is another in- reason to encourage people to not hold large amounts of money in the bank. Yes, hmm, strange. So where 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 does Bretton Woods play into this?
0: So Bretton Woods came a little later. So in American history, you had you know for the for the eighteen hundreds and then in the early nineteen hundreds, you had a gold standard. So if, if you had a banknote, you could, you can convert that to gold and back and in many other countries as well. That was the whole point of the gold standard. Yep. Um, in, in 1933, 1934, they passed a law where they said it's illegal for Americans to own gold mm-hmm. and notes are no longer going to be redeemable for gold. And then, then after that conversion happened, so they told everyone, okay, come in, turn your gold in, we'll give you the, the dollar amount for the gold, uh, to be compliant. Once they all did that, then they reset the value of gold uh, overnight, basically. Um, so that the, the big winner there was the American government that, you know, has all this gold in the vault. And so that actually allowed them to create a lot more dollars because, the, you know, the, their backing could still be maintained because they just devalued what a dollar is compared to gold. It's essentially a type of default. Right. Any, anyone who was owed debt when that happened basically was defaulted on because they changed the definition of what they were owed in. Right? So it's right. like if you made a contract where you owe me a certain number of dollars and then you, know, you pay me back in like a, uh, a dollar and another, like a, you know, another type of dollar, like Singapore dollars. Yeah, uh, I'm like, well, that wasn't part of the contract. We're like, well, it didn't say what kind of
1: dollar. So it went from a, a redeemable dollar to a non-redeemable
0: dollar. Well, it went from redeemable to non-redeemable and it also was pegged to a lower amount and was not even redeemable for that lower amount. Gold. (laughs) Now, what it was redeemable for is for foreign creditors because they had to maintain why someone in Europe might want to ever accept American dollars for anything. So foreign official, like say, central banks, they could still redeem dollars for gold at that lower rate. At the lower rate. And then the Bretton Woods system was, as World War II was winding down, all the countries involved basically had messed up their currencies. They all had, they, they all had printed way more currency than they had the gold to back up. And part of that was because you had that separation between the money creation process and gold. In a free banking era, you know you can't create far more banknotes than you have gold because you know at the end of the day that you have a certain amount of depositors that could come and get your gold. But when you have all, you know, banks don't even hold their own gold. It's all in like the central vaults. They make their loans based on other, other factors. You can have a complete detachment between loans, like the currency in circulation, and gold, the amount of gold that's in the system. So the, the gold ends up not being a constraint on money creation when the redeemability is severed. And so by the time Bretton Woods came around, you know, World War II came around, you had way more currency in the system than gold. Uh-huh. And also because of what was happening in Europe, a lot of the gold was shipped to the United States to keep it safe uh, in the event of, you know, German occupation. And so, the United States was in a position where they had, uh, emerged more favorably than Europe, because they were mostly un- unattacked during the war, other than Pearl Harbor. Uh-huh. And they had a lot of the gold. And so, countries convened together, I believe it was 44 countries, and they convened in New Hampshire, Bretton Woods, that's where, that's where the name came from, and they had been in a pseudo-gold standard. Where okay. they said, okay, dollars are still not redeemable for gold. But international creditors uh, can still redeem dollars for gold. And the way it would work is that other countries would peg their currencies to
1: the dollar. Okay. It just, it just sounds like we, we've gone from 1913 to 1944, and we're starting to expose a lot of cracks or ways it can the system can be manipulated for the benefit of the federal government. And... I guess when you was it Alexander Hamilton and George Washington? You said disagreed on this.
0: No, it was Hamilton and Jefferson. Oh, Hamilton and, and, and Jefferson. They, they
1: of course had factions with them. Right. Do we know why Jefferson was against it? Do you, Do you know that? Because otherwise, I'm definitely going to research that.
0: Well, so that was it's was actually similar to what you have between the modern Democrats and the Republicans, it's kind okay. of states' rights issue versus uh, federal government. So Alexander Hamilton was in favor of a strong federal government, and Jefferson was in favor of more agrarian. Kind of a Federation of Sovereign States type of model. So you have okay. disagreements about what the United States should look like.
1: I definitely need to do a lot, lot, I'd love to get a historian on a, to cover that period. Um, it's fascinating. Okay, so at what, what point did everyone start to withdraw, the country start to withdraw their gold from the USA and return it back? Was it after the war? I seem to remember France for some reason. That was when you got to the 60s and the 70s. Right. So after the Bretton Woods
0: system was established, you basically had, you know, between the, the World War I and World War II, you had these floundering currencies everywhere. Yeah. Because so everybody was printing way more currency than they had the gold to back up. And you, and you increasingly disassociated the money creation process from gold. And the 1944 agreement, uh, you know, gave back some degree of international stability to these markets. Um, and so that worked for a period of time. The problem was that, again, the 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 gold was so separate from the bank money creation process that you still had a proliferation of dollar creation. Any time a bank makes a loan, they're basically creating new dollars. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you had the number of dollars in existence grow more than the amount of gold in America's vaults. And so anyone who's smart, uh, foreign central bankers would say, you know what, we're going to go ahead and take some of our dollars and, and get some of that gold if you don't mind. And so over time, if you look at a chart, Gold, American gold holdings kept decreasing throughout the 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, and it became more and more apparent that this was going to be a, you know, this was unsustainable. Hmm. The gold was going down while the amount of dollars in existence was going up. Uh, and, you know, the United States would try to slow down that creation. Like, if you, if you were aggressively turning your dollars into gold, you became on unfriendly terms with the United States. So you're basically calling their bluff on the system. And so the classic example is the French when they sent over a battleship. And they said, no, we want the gold. We we want the actual physical gold. Put it on our ship, we'll bring it over. Uh, And as those bluffs were increasingly called uh, on on the United States, they eventually had to say, you know what? We have to temporarily uh, stop this gold redemption process. They never said, like Nixon never said, we're going to stop doing this forever. He said, due to uh, speculators and things like that, we have to temporarily stop doing this. Uh, but of course, temporary became permanent, and so the dollar was no longer redeemable, even to foreign creditors for gold. So you had this kind of multi-step process where the world wasn't on a gold standard and then off a gold standard. It was, in, it was step by step. So first, it was on a gold standard, and then it was only on a gold standard for certain types of large in, in, like institutional and foreign creditors, and then it was nobody at all can redeem dollars for gold.
1: Right. What, what was breaking in the system? Because a lot of people are um, ardent supporters of the gold standard, thinks, um, you know, our uh, one of our team, uh, Ben, put the website together, what the fuck happened in 1971, talks about everything that's happened since coming off the gold standard in 1971. But what was breaking in the system at this point? Like, what's, What was stopping the central bank from performing? I
0: think what was breaking was that the money creation process and the amount of gold there are so many abstractions between those two things that the amount of gold could not prevent money creation. Right. And so, basically, the way I phrase it is not that the bad decisions were not made in 1971. That was like an that was just marking to market the problem that had already happened. Okay. By the time you got into the 60s, the system was already broken. There's this combination of fiscal expenditure and just normal bank lending. All of that was resulting in way more currency uh, than the gold that could actually back that up. And that's when you basically go from a free banking system to a central banking system, you just completely, the whole, like the gold in the treasury vaults, you know, the, when banks make loans, they never go check how much gold is sitting in the treasury vaults. They, they're looking at their own capital ratios and consumers are taking out loans and you just have a complete separation. And even foreign, foreign banks could actually collect dollars in the whole offshore market, the whole euro dollar market, and they could make loans. So there's even non-American banks making dollar loans, and therefore making more more claims on dollars in existence compared to the amount of gold sitting in the treasury vaults.
1: And this is why Bitcoin is a better technology for such a standard because you can verify how much exists if, as long as people want. To you can show verify
0: you how much exists in it's then you, real? Yeah, you could do uh, an institution can do proof of reserves unlike you know, a free bank uh, of a prior era, and then in addition, because it's not it doesn't have those portability challenges that gold has, it's easier to self-custody or do collaborative custody with and then send it at the speed of light around the world, either through lightning or a little bit slower through base
1: layer transactions. Okay, but the consistent problem here is money creation. The, the ease of creating money, uh, as Jeff Booth would say, dis, uh, creates distortion of money.
0: Yes, it will, especially if you have something that, if money is defined as a claim for something else, yeah. like banknotes or a claim for gold, uh, if you have the the processes too very like very far apart, then gold ends up not being a constraint for that money creation, and that's why throughout history you'd have these routine peg deep like peg breaks. We say, okay, now we're going to devalue the currency compared to the gold because we realize we created too much. The question keeps being, why do you keep creating too much? And it's because there's so many steps between between the two, uh, and that that's really kind of the the outcome I think between when you go from that central banking era all the way up to the 1970s, you increasingly abstracted the money creation process from gold. And so even in a free banking era, there would be more dollars, there'd be more claims for gold than gold, but it was a relatively low ratio because any individual entity knew how much gold they had and was issuing notes against that gold. Whereas when you have layers and layers and layers, that's when you get these, the number of claims can be far, far higher than the
1: amount of gold. Okay, before we carry on with the interview, I do have a message from my amazing sponsors. From the people behind sportsbet.io, we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, bitcasino is the best bitcoin casino out there to find out more about bitcasino the first bitcoin casino to win an egr award head over to bitcasino.io which is bitcasin dot I-O. and please remember to gamble responsibly next up it is blockfi now blockfi bridges the world of traditional finance and bitcoin empowering you for this future financial world And for those people living in the U.S. who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way to earn more Bitcoin. There are no fees to use the card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. You can earn 1.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases forever and you can earn 2% back in bitcoin on every dollar over $50,000 of annual spend. Now if you want to stack sats with BlockFi, then please head over to blockfi.com to find out more and read the terms and conditions, all available at b l o c k f Next up is the Pacific Bitcoin Conference, hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th this year in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known Yan, Brady, and Corey for years, and they're pulling out all the stops to make this the biggest Bitcoin-only event ever. I'll be emceeing the conference along with my friends Natalie Brunel and Stefan Levera, and there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers. This conference is going to be the right mix of education and good fun with unique experiences such as a surf simulator and an 80s arcade gaming lounge. They are inviting the smartest minds in the Bitcoin space to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation state adoption and from mining to lightning. Whether you want to attend or sponsor the event, you can find out more at PacificBitcoin.la, which is P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.la. Also, we have Ledger, and the world's most popular wallet just got better. Ledger has recently announced the launch of their Nano S+. With a larger screen, it is now easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S Plus maintains the same level of high security as all other Ledger products. I have been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I absolutely love the S Plus. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is L E D G E R.com. Okay, so free banking is more um, decentralized risk, whereas central banking, uh, the uh, Euro Central Banking, would uh, essentially socialize risks. Yes, but it could be um, exploited by uh, politicians for political reasons to you know, create money. Um, whereas at a in the free banking era, it'd be more about risk and reputation of the banks themselves. So there's just these trade-offs. Yes. But I do, one of the things I've always wondered is, uh, you know, there's a lot of criticism towards central banks and money creation, but I wonder if there has been some benefits from it. Has there, you yeah, know, has the avail- the ability to, you know, create money and um, make credit cheap, has that seen an acceleration in innovation? Um, I've always wondered if there's like, if there's some benefits we've not openly discuss. And I know that kind of benefit also has a trade-off because for that for whatever winners that exist there, there are losers elsewhere. But are there benefits to the money creation that we don't ever talk about?
0: I the way I would kind of answer that, I think, is looking at money as a technology and therefore looking at these steps as some degree of inevitabilities. So when you had gold and then you had the creation of telecommunications channels and good accounting and ledgers and things like that. The world could move faster than the gold as a bearer asset could move. Mm-hmm. And so it became kind of inevitable. Due to technology, you'd have an abstraction between the two, and that abstraction is easy to arbitrage and centralize. Okay. And the fact that it kind of happened multiple instances throughout the world shows that it's almost an inevitability. It would take profound discipline in order to not have that centralized. Uh, you'd have to have a very strong culture around, you know, keeping that from coalescing, and so it's it's like an unfortunate fact of history that this, the way the technology worked out, the order in which we got technologies, kind of led to the abstraction between money and currency, and then kind of the state and central banks controlling that currency, and so while it came with advantages, mainly I think a lot of the advantages came from telecommunications channels and and social contracts and things like that um, it also came with a ton of costs. That basically money could be diluted without people even knowing that their money's being diluted because they're holding something that they think is worth a certain amount of gold and then there's a war and then they can just print a lot of money and then be like, oh, now, now your note is worth either less gold or no gold or in theory it could be redeemable but not by you. And, you know, so it's kind of a more rapid button that that, that governments can press compared to what they used to be able to do. So, for example, if we were citizens in Rome, and Rome was trying to fight wars and they didn't have enough money, clip, clip. they could start being sneaky. They could clip coins. They could make yep. diluted coins. But if I'm holding my gold, uh, you know, it's hard for them to devalue my gold. Over generations, they could do it. But if I'm holding just a claim on gold, then Rome or whatever other country could just, you know, with the snap of a finger, devalue my holding. Because I'm only holding a claim. I'm not actually holding the bearer asset. Right, and so that's the environment that we found ourselves in over this past century, century and a half. Is people just holding claims, and claims can be devalued overnight.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is why it's quite interesting that um, still to this day, uh, many governments and central banks still hold gold, um, um, and a lot of individuals don't. It's a bit like, do you know? It reminds me of a bit. Reminds me of these shitcoin companies that hold Bitcoin, but try and. Pushed their shit coins to other people um the gold was still the valuable asset that retained its value um do you like kind of on a personal level i'd like I'd love to know your opinion do you think there is a role for central banks do you think they are a net positive or a net negative do you see a world without them and think it might be better i'd be just because I trust you so much i'd'd I'd enjoy to hear your opinion on that
0: i think it's largely dictated by technology okay uh and so I think it was kind of inevitable that, that there would arise in this period where telecommunications and information could travel faster than money. Basically, the, the fact that that arbitrage existed almost inevitably would lead to central banks existing and the, the, any sort of advantages and disadvantages that came from that. Um, I think if we get to a point, either through Bitcoin and, and, and just, you know, it's the long run, here we go, I think that you can reduce or eliminate the need. For central banks, they no longer make sense potentially in that type of environment. So, for example, if someone would ask me if I'm in favor of price controls, my answer would be no. I think that markets should set prices, um, and that includes things like energy and the price of money, the, the 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 lending rate that different institutions decide to lend to each other. So, no, I don't. I think in the long run, we should not have central committees, literally a group of like a bunch of gray old men. Yeah, a bunch of gray-haired people deciding what the what the price of money is going to be. Uh, in a 330 million person country that then also has ramifications for the whole world. I, I think that's a very analog and silly model in this day and age. But I think that it was in some ways, I think a lot of it, people focus on the idea that it was immoral. And in many ways it was. I mean, the whole point is everybody wants to get their, their bigger share. So they want to, you know, if you're in a position of power, you, you like the Cantillon effect, right? Of course. But in some ways, I view it as a technological inevitability. When you when you had information and commerce travel faster than money, that's just, that's what's going to arise. And if you can make that money travel as fast as commerce can, then I think it narrows any sort of reason why, in the
1: long run, you would have central banks. And and where we are right now with central banks and where we are right now with the economy, uh, is this just a, like uh, a natural uh, place we've got to because of the kind of inherent flaws within central banking and the misincentives and the ability to create money? Or has something gone extra-specially wrong over the last, say, 20, 30 years?
0: I think that a couple of things converge. So one is the long-term debt cycle, Uh and I think that a lot of that is fueled by central banking. A lot of that is fueled by central banking. Uh, And then two, you just have cultural shifts. You build up institutions, and after a number of generations, uh, the institutions seem like they don't make sense anymore. It's a new technology, a new culture. Uh, And you start to get less and less trust and more and more corruption in those institutions, both public and private. Uh, And then coinciding with that is, we talked about in our our prior episode, the commodity cycle where, you know, and and also the globalization cycle where we've kind of arbitraged geographic labor and arbitraged energy and commodities. And so I think what we're seeing right now is this combination of the long-term debt cycle. So I think we're kind of getting the payback period for a multi-decade kind of, price controls of mm-hmm. money, essentially. And then we're also experiencing that specifically because we're at the phase of the commodity cycle and the supply chain cycle where it's hard not to have inflation. And because central banks and other factors have led to so much debt accumulation in the economy, they can't really raise rates. And they, they can't really kind of backstop and make sure that a currency kind of continues to be worth a certain amount of energy. And so I think that's where we're in now, where we have to go back to the 40s to find a similar type of extreme environment, at least in terms of
1: fiscal and monetary policy. And I guess, therefore, with Bitcoin, you can't have price controls with money.
0: Well, I think in the long run, that that is that makes it harder to do so. I, I think that if you have peer-to-peer money that can be self-custody supported by encryption, it's much harder to kind of overlay essentially controlled ideas on, on how that money is going to transfer around. Basically, if you if you control the banking system, the way I would phrase it basically is that, you know, before Bitcoin, if I wanted to send money to a friend in Tokyo, right, we had to go through banks. Yep. We had to go through these large permissioned entities. And so governments could control the gateways of where value sent, and they don't have to impose on the people. They don't have to impose price controls on the people. They don't have to impose uh, transfer controls on the people. They only have to target these well-known banks but as soon as we had the the invention of peer-to-peer money that that kind of depowers in some ways that institution but it only works if enough people are understanding how to use this technology and centralize around a handful or one of them rather than this kind of current hodgepodge of so many different things and a very small percentage of people actually using them uh, and so i think in the long run yes
1: i'm not going to ask you for a natural number but do you do you see a scenario where bitcoin does become the this- The standard for the world, it does displace central banks. I think it's
0: a reasonable hypothesis, right? I mean, the the idea is that a new type of money has been discovered. Uh It's unusually hard, right? In terms of say its stock to flow ratio, and it's decentralized and peer to peer, and that in the long run, the question was why would you want to hold other types of money other than that money? Right? Right now, you can make a case why you wouldn't want to put all your money in that. You don't know it's only thirteen years old. It's volatile. Uh, Maybe it's small enough that. Governments could add a lot of frictions to it. They could make it harder. They could, you know, try to hurt the value of it for a long period of time. But the more it grows, the more you think, why would I want to hold, you know, uh, yen? Why would I want to hold euros? Why would I want to hold a second house as a kind of a monetary asset? Why would I want to hold a painting when I can just hold the best money? So I think if if it continues to work as expected, uh, and if it gets past a number of challenges, I think it it takes a pretty big chunk of of global monetary share. So I would say, it's a monetization process that clearly has a direction. And the question is, do any of the tail risks make it deviate from
1: that destiny? And do you see a scenario where potentially, um, similar to the free banking era, where uh, credit notes were issued against uh, gold, that we could have forms of money which are credits or notes issued against Bitcoin?
0: I think so yeah i think I think you could have a free banking system based on Bitcoin in theory, and it would have advantages over gold in the sense that banks could have proof of reserves that's the, that's the theme that Nick Carter yeah, I mean, brings up a lot I think it's a good it's a good one uh and the fact that it's just inherently more uh faster right that it it kind of it reduces the desire and the need to hold currencies that are backed by nothing that cost nothing to produce, and the only way to enforce those ends up being basically uh, force essentially that it, if, if you want to force people to hold a softer money, it takes some degree of, of coercion. But right now it's not super needed because the trust level of these, you know, cryptocurrencies as a whole, especially, uh, and then even Bitcoin, a lot of people can not differentiate between different, different cryptos. They don't know how, how Bitcoin's different than hmm. Dogecoin or different than Luna. They, a lot of people just kind of put them all into one bucket. And I think that over time and knowledge, if you do get that large enough understanding and adoption of Bitcoin, it, it becomes harder and harder to maintain other types of money.
1: I guess we essentially when you wrap Bitcoin and you take another token as an asset against that Bitcoin, that is essentially a very similar scenario where you'll be issued something that can be redeemed for Bitcoin yes. in and out. And I know probably very similar to what U.S. What happened with UST and Luna, except obviously... That completely failed. Um, but that's an interesting scenario because I wonder if that's something that enables Bitcoin to, to scale better.
0: You, yeah, you, the short answer, you need to incentivize that in some ways. Yeah. So, for example, we have the liquid network where you give a Bitcoin, you peg it in and you get a liquid Bitcoin. And the advantage there, so the disadvantage, first of all, is that you're not directly holding Bitcoin anymore. Yep. Now you have a, an extra layer of trust built on top of your Bitcoin that uh, the, the federation is not going to work against you. Uh, but what you get in, resp- in return is that you get faster Bitcoin, you get more expressive Bitcoin, and a little bit more private Bitcoin. Hmm. Right? So you're, you're agreeing to a set of trade-offs. And then there's other versions like, for example, federated and mints where they can make essentially an even more anonymous version of, of kind of like what Liquid's doing.
1: I've seen, I've seen people talking about this recently. I know Anita Posh has talked about this. Um, I think I saw Matt O'Dell talking about this. Do you want to explain what these federated mints are? So
0: someone Chairman. someone with a degree in computer science could go way <laughs> more into detail, but essentially it goes back to the 1980s. Uh, you know, uh, uh, CHOM, uh, they created blind signatures where you could essentially run what is basically a community bank where you can peg in... Something, let's call it, but that was pre Bitcoin. It's kind of the initial e e-ca- cash. But if you were to apply it to Bitcoin, you can peg in a Bitcoin to a Charming mint and get a token that represents a Bitcoin or a, de- you know, a denomination for Bitcoin. You could have different bills, basically, uh, digital bills representing a certain amount of Bitcoin. And the cool part about it is that it's anonymous to both the creator of the mint and to other users. Uh, the downside is you have to trust that the person running the mint is either not going to be coerced, or exit scam. It's, it's a centralizing force. And that's, that's, I think, a big piece of why the initial creation of it back in the 80s and 90s didn't take off. But there are ways to reduce that. So, for example, if you had that built on a multisig, and it was a federation, that becomes a somewhat more reasonable trust model. We have to assume that, say, the, the, the board of directors of this institution is not going to, the majority of them are not going to be corrupt or coerced to act against it. And so what you essentially have is these anonymous community banks that hold Bitcoin and that issue blind IOUs that are essentially more anonymous versions of Bitcoin, uh, but they go through that federated trust model. So it's kind of like Liquid with a, it's less auditable, but more private.
1: Okay, and I guess with something like that, you could build, I don't know, small regional little economic uh, centers, a bit like what happened with Bitcoin Beach. Yeah. And you could use that I mean, somebody could fund uh, a local project and have a distribution of sub tokens for that from that mint and help drive that economy. Yes. Yeah, that's fascinating.
0: Yeah, there's a whole you can do fully centralized ones, you can do federated ones, you can do anonymous ones, you can do non anonymous ones. There's all sorts of models you can build using Bitcoin as a base layer, similar to gold. And it just becomes a question of does Bitcoin become a large and stable enough asset base? for those sorts of things to become sustainable.
1: I kind of wonder what the impact is in terms of how, how uh, the, the central banks will break down, how, what, what, how they would collapse and what the impact would be. If, have you thought through that?
0: Well, we kind of see in emerging markets okay. a model of how that works, where they get to a point where they have recession and high inflation at the same time. They have okay. stagflation. Uh, and that's something that's been very rare for developed markets uh, in the past, in, during this whole span of the system. So we saw it during World War II. Uh, we saw it during the 70s. Uh, that was the breakdown of the Bretton Woods. And then, uh, we really haven't seen it since then. Uh, and so now we're seeing it kind of, for the first time, cracks emerge in the developed, uh, market central banks. And so I think the way that eventually breaks down is when you have high inflation, uh, but they can't raise rates to maintain it, and faith in that system deteriorates, and the quantity keeps increasing. Like what's happening right now, <laughs> like what's happening now, but people are quick to jump to like the Weimar comparison right they're always okay, yeah. they, they, they tend to go to the fastest thing. A couple of points about that one is even in Weimar, you would think looking back at the chart, you'd think, well, the easiest thing to do is to hold gold and you know even even lever your gold. The funny thing is, you know when you zoom in on the micro, you know German authorities weren't dumb they weren't just letting this happen, there they they were periods where they tried to fight back. They tried to strengthen their currency, and they tried to rein this in. And so you'd have, for example, gold draw down 80% in German marks during hyperinflation, uh, and then shoot up, you know, a million percent. Like basically, it was like this crazy sine wave that was breaking out. It kind of looked like a Bitcoin chart. Hmm. Gold basically looked like Bitcoin in, in German marks during hyperinflation. Uh, so one is that even hyperinflations, when there's attempted pushbacks, they're not smooth. And two, that you can have much, much slower versions of that, where you know something like Weimar was a very specific case. You had a deindustrialized economy from the war. You had external liabilities uh, denominated things you can't print. Uh, Is that whereas, the
1: reparations? Yeah, the
0: reparations. Yeah. Uh, and so now you're in an environment where major developed central banks and governments and, and institutions in them they owe debt denominated in their own currency but their currencies slowly failing because it's no longer worth a certain amount of energy anymore and the interest rates are no longer able to compensate for that high inflation so I think this decade is going to be transformative, but we're still too early to say exactly where this ends up or how quickly this goes.
1: Okay, so interesting. So if it looks like a Bitcoin chart, but is it really like the Bitcoin chart in reverse in that you've got uh, the Weimar Republic is a collapse of a currency and it's becoming increasingly more volatile, but actually the Bitcoin chart is super volatile, but the volatility is dropping as it's, you know, essentially as we're uh, recapitalizing the world on a, on a new currency. Are we, are we kind of seeing Kind of, yes. You that, see what you mean? In
0: Weimar, you had the collapse of the mark to the gold. Yeah. Whereas now, you have mostly the rise of Bitcoin with a smaller collapse of the fiat currencies.
1: Hmm. So, in a world of no central banks, is inflation then purely down to growth in productivity and changes in economic environments? How do you think? What, what, is, is inflation just like a naturally occurring phenomenon?
0: So I think in the long arc of time, deflation is, okay. is is kind of the the outcome because so even in our current environment right now, let's say you have three percent inflation uh-huh. over a long period of time. If you look at the actual money supply, that might be six percent average money supply growth. Okay. And the question is, where is that other three percent? Right. So if you have three percent inflation and money creation is actually six percent. It's really because there's a lot of innovation going to making prices cheaper on a regular basis. We can think of it in terms of TVs, computers, smartphones. Again, what Jeff Booth talks to us about. Yes. Yeah. So the underlying long-term arc is towards technological deflation. So things get cheaper over time, most things. Um, uh, Especially when compared to whatever the hardest money is. So things priced in gold tend to get cheaper over time because we find better and better ways to produce more of them. Um, but they tend to go up as priced in fiat currencies because we're making fiat currencies at a faster rate than that uh, uh, technological disinflation, deflation. And so if you had a hard money environment, whether it's gold, which has like a 2% inflation rate, or Bitcoin, which tends towards a 0% inflation rate, you would incline towards you know, low negative inflation. Yeah, If, uh-
1: if you ever, ever kind of had that environment. And I guess also we have Bitcoin, which is lost, or we have the dust number, which can't be used. Like there's, even though it trends towards zero, the actual total supply, even if it's not been issued, is also, or total available supply is always shrinking as well. Huh, I do wonder though, like, I wonder if Bitcoin can support 8 billion people. That I don't, I haven't seen the evidence that it can. Now I've, I know some people have talked about uh uh, uh, sats being like micro sets, and but I haven't spent enough time looking at that. Um, I'd be interested. Have you, have you considered that?
0: I think yeah. Well, yes. I think the only way it works realistically is in layers. Okay. Which is how any financial system, any any complex financial systems developed, right? So you have basically Bitcoin as the base layer. You have Lightning, and then you have different levels of custody on top of that. You could have things like Cash App, right? So it's Cash App can scale to tons of people, but of course, you're trusting Cash App. You're, you're giving up some degree of the permissionless. Then you have those things like federated chalming mints that can be a, a on the spectrum between self-custody and you know third-party custody. You can have these kind of distributed custodies. So I think when you combine multiple layers and technologies together, people can kind of choose their own adventure on how far down the Bitcoin stack they huh. want to go or what their economic reality allows them to go. Right. So someone... With a lot of Bitcoin might want to go deeper on the Bitcoin stack, whereas a lot of other people might want to rely on those federated custody services or fully custody, custody services or just have their own kind of lightning setup.
1: Yeah, and if you have other scaling solutions like uh, uh, Liquid, there could be a variety of these. Yes. This is essentially the very similar to the free banking era, yes. think, but it's the free Bitcoin banking era, kind of. Yes, And different... Bitcoin will have, like, I guess, different value. But I, I mean, I don't know if there, is there, a, is there a premium or a discount on liquid Bitcoin? I don't think there is. I think they trade one for one.
0: I think so, yes. There'd be, so in the free banking era, there was a discount based on the, one is how much you trusted the originator of that issuance, and then two, how far you were from it, how liquid it was. So for example, the Bank of Arkansas, let's call it. If you lived right near the Bank of Arkansas, it'd probably trade one-to-one uh, because you know it's super liquid. It was, if you're in New York, you're like, I don't want the Bank of Arkansas. note. I'll I'll buy that for 80 cents. Yeah, fuck Arkansas. Because I got to do all this friction to get it ever redeemed. Yeah. I have to get it to Arkansas. Um, and I don't really trust it, right? Yeah. So you'd have these different levels of of pegs. We actually kind of see that today with USDC and Tether. Well, right? So yeah. during the whole lunar fiasco, um, USDC you know their attestation so is 100% T bills and cash whereas Tether has a portfolio model where they heard, they hold some of those but they also hold some assets that do have risk and they also have that this longer track record of of people questioning their asset quality and so you had more people want to redeem Tether Tether is trading at a at a discount whereas USDC was trading at either full or sometimes a premium and so you have different levels of, of how the market assesses their risk and arbitrages that. Some people say, okay, you want to sell me tellers for 95 cents? I'll go ahead and redeem them for dollars. And so you have someone willing to step in and arbitrage that. So yeah, basically in an era uh, that is like that, including the one right now, if there are questions about liquidity or solvency, you'd get a discount. Compared to the underlying Bitcoin that it represents,
1: it's fascinating. We're living in an era where we could genuinely see a transition to a completely new monetary system. Potentially,
0: I mean. Yeah. That, but if you look back in history, that happens on a you know not a not a frequent basis, but it happens regularly. Money is a type of technology, essentially. Yeah. Um, and I think we're you know thirteen years into this, we're still premature in terms of imagining the world fifty, hundred years from now. Right? Like, yeah, we can have these visions of what what things happen, but I do think that cryptography has changed the, and a global network. The combination of a global network with cryptography, with proof of work, with difficulty adjustments has changed the game here in terms of what is possible with money. And Bitcoin is obviously the best version we know of on how to do that. So you can never really fast forward 20, 30 years and say, this is what the world looks like. Uh, But I think that we've opened this Pandora's box Mm. of kind of recreating the possibility of hard money, commodity money, but one that, unlike gold, moves at the speed of light.
1: But these transitions to new monies that have happened historically usually come because a better money is replacing a failing money. Yes. And we have a better money replacing what is failing money right now. I guess the control around this is is state reaction to it, because undoubtedly, Bitcoin reduces or changes the shape of the state. But again, one of the interesting parts of that is it's very clear that this, yeah, you know, there there isn't a separation between money and state now. The the, for example, in the U.S., it's very clear. There's a relationship between uh, the government and the Fed. It's very clear that policy decisions seem to be timed uh, relative to um, in time to uh, midterms or elections. That all goes away under a Bitcoin standard and. Therefore, any kind of centralized state force, whether if it's funded by Bitcoin or whatever, it kind of loses that ability to distort the money based on election cycles, which is obviously very good.
0: Yes. <laughs> but I think people still have to be somewhat realistic in terms of how far that goes. I mean, yeah. for example, Rome, the, the Roman Empire was still, in some, in some sense, you had separation of state and money, they, they couldn't just snap their fingers and create gold. Now, they, over time, could dilute gold and things like that. uh, And they could, of course, put their Caesar's heads on the gold. But essentially, you still had a separation between what money was, you know, and, and and the state's ability to create it. And yet you still had Rome, right? And so the question becomes, that, of course, affects the size of states and affects the way that states can operate. But I think it's challenging to envision exactly what that world looks like in a
1: you know, cryptographic version of gold. Well, the state could be whoever has the most money, the most Bitcoin. Arguably. Because they could control the most resources. We might live in the uh, state of Michael Saylor. (laughs) Uh, Is there anything I've not covered on central banks that I should have, or anything I should have asked you about? I think we touched on
0: most things. I think uh, one thing we could talk about is the inflation requirement. So we have central banks that have a positive...
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I... I grew up, I think I've said this to you before, I grew up uh, aware of inflation numbers on the news. I don't know why, I just always remember, it used to stand out to me, inflation's at this number or inflation's targeting this number. And so I always felt like uh, inflation was like a natural part of the economy, part of a healthy economy. I almost associated it with growth, like if there's inflation, there's growth. I wasn't aware of the insidious uh, insidious nature of inflation until I started making this show. Um, now I question, is it really just Keynesian propaganda? But that's certainly what what, what
0: the argument would be, basically, the the idea that we need constant inflation in order to keep the wheels on the cart. And I think the problem is that the edifice we've constructed is so debt-based that they end up kind of being a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. In the current system... Yeah, so you need inflation, otherwise you get collapsed. Kind of like how a shark has to keep swimming, otherwise it drowns. Mm -hmm. Kind of like how if you build this, you know, extremely meticulous garden, you need to constantly maintain it against the force of nature that would just turn it into like a forest, right? So in this system we've constructed, it doesn't really work unless you have continuous inflation. You have to have money supply growing quickly enough to support all the debt. But I think the mistake people do is they take that and they assume that that's just a rule of the universe. Whereas if you had a much lower debt system with a much sounder base, then you wouldn 't need that, and realistically,
1: you couldn 't even get that hmm well it's look it 's fascinating uh, we we 're right, right in the center of watching this happen and i 'm speculating that it will win um, and i 'm really interested in the effects of this we had um do you know Harry Suk yes, we had a long chat with Harry last night and we all went out to dinner and we talked about. Uh, Bitcoin being like this uh, black hole um, and, and and swallowing or changing industries and it's swallowed energy and it's swallowing money and now it's actually not just swallowed energy but swallowing energy companies and it's like this singularity that everything's heading towards and I think the most interesting thing is going to be the things we aren't aware of. Um, I wasn't you know, I wasn't aware of the idea that. Bitcoin mining would lead to the build-out of new energy facilities. I never foresaw that four or five years ago. And I can't foresee other things, but I know there's going to be changes. So, very cool. Sounds like central banks are done. Um, what will be will be.
0: We'll see what happens. I think, again, it comes down to technology. Yeah. right? So, right now, we're in the process of testing this 13-year-old technology. Yeah. Right. So, in the beginning, the funny thing is, when you look at the at the forums, when WikiLeaks turned to you know, using Bitcoin, Mm -hmm. Satoshi got nervous. Yeah, of course. He wasn't sure it was ready for that. Yeah. And of course, we've come a long way since then, um, but it always requires a degree of humility to see, is this network ready for this? Can it withstand a certain state attack? Can it withstand, you know, this happening, right? So everything that Bitcoin goes through, we're testing to see how hard and how durable the network is. So the Mt. Gox attack, uh, certain countries banning it, unbanning it. Chinese, uh, China banning Bitcoin miners. Uh, What happens in this environment? What happens in this environment? What happens if a million altcoins try to scam people into going into other systems and then they blow up and they have to sell their Bitcoin into the weak market? So we're testing every step along the way. You know, is this the right system? What are the attack vectors? Uh, Is there some sort of way to exploit it? Can we hack it? Things like that, right? We're kind of testing all this through. And so looking super far ahead can be premature, because we're still testing the system, but we, we have a clear direction here. The Pandora's box has been opened in terms of cryptographic money, peer-to-peer money, self-custodial, you know, using encryption, and we see a clear direction. And then the question just becomes, do, does any risk that we haven't accounted for throw us off of that? And if no, then, then we, you know, basically it becomes continually a stronger form of money than anything we've had before. And then it becomes a question of what does that mean? What does that mean for central banking? Does it arbitrage between the economy moving faster than the money go away? And does it mean that, you know, we we have, say, created some sort of asymmetrical technology that empowers people over larger entities? Because, you know, again, in the prior conversation, we talked about the Oslo Freedom Forum and Human Rights Foundation this is a strong environment for authoritarian regimes. Because yep. if you control the banking system, and if you have advanced surveillance technology and you know, big data, you have a lot of top-down power. And whereas cryptographic money is kind of bottom-up
1: power. And the question becomes, which one of those two forces is stronger? Oh, okay. Well, I know which one I, I want. Um, Lynn, when, remind me, when did you first like, start seriously getting into Bitcoin? So, I first heard about it in 2010. And I thought it was
0: neat, but... I was and like, you bought a shitload? Nope. Oh. Nope. And I kept hearing about it. My question, my my base question was, because a lot of people would hear it and dismiss it. Yeah. For me, I never dismissed it, but I was like, why can't you just copy it? Or maybe they'll make a better one. Or I, I kind of got the basics of it. I was like, it eh, seems neat. In 2017, I took it seriously. Okay. But it was very euphoric at the time. And again, I was like, I'm not sure which one of these is going to win. It was really when I saw the resolution of the block size war. Uh, and I kind of saw the immutability of Bitcoin tested. Okay. And I saw the the differentiating network effect of Bitcoin versus the others. And then I delved deeper into technology of, you know, why why doesn't Bitcoin have smart contracts? Why do they keep the block size small? Why, why, why didn't Bcash win over Bitcoin? Like, what, like basically going into the rabbit hole of why these variables are the way they are. Why can't you just change it? How immutable actually is it? That's when I, I got kind of interested in it. So I bought my first Bitcoin in, in April 2020.
1: April 2020. And over the last two years, because when I was first introduced to you, I was like, oh, uh, Lynn's just an expert in macro- macroeconomics and has been uh, getting into Bitcoin. But yeah, following you on Twitter, I, the Bitcoin stuff is grown and growing. Uh, are, are you finding yourself like sucked into the gravity of Bitcoin and and it potentially being fundam- like a fundamental wrapper to everything within the macro environment? Or are you just being sucked in because it's so bloody interesting?
0: I think both. I think one, it's, so it blends technology with economics, which is profoundly interesting. And it's also a set of building blocks. I made the analogy before that when the iPhone came out, no one thought this is going to disrupt the taxi industry in 10 years. And, you know, then we had Uber and it did. And so when we have programmable peer-to-peer money, what does that mean? It's like a building block that it's hard to envision 10 years from now, what that means. Uh, And so... I'm just kind of super excited about what that means for a lot of things. And then two, a lot of my macro work is around studying money, currency, and energy, which just naturally, you, go. You, can't, you can't not have a view on Bitcoin. You can't not study Bitcoin and figure out to what extent do I want to hold Bitcoin, but also to what extent does Bitcoin change my other things? To what extent does it change energy companies? To what, what extent does it exchange, like, uh, affect reserve practices? To what extent does it uh, affect periphery markets that are already struggling under the current system? and they may want to go to another system. Uh, and so, because a large part of my focus is on studying the failures of the current monetary system, I can't help be interested in, in the future possibilities of, of what can
1: happen if these other technologies continue to be adopted. But there are plenty of other people who study these markets like yourself, and they completely dismiss Bitcoin. Fools.
0: I think, well, there's a couple <laughs> there's a couple of things. One is, I think they... they it's a very large time commitment to understand. Yeah. So my multiple first interactions with it, I was open-minded, but I, it was hard to jump in and just put the time in and see what, why does this work the way it does? What makes it unstoppable or hard to stop, you should say? Uh, and then two, um, I think a lot of people are either turned off. They, they, they either are mad they didn't buy it earlier or they're turned <laughs> off by some segment of the community and they don't realize that the actual ecosystems got far more layers and depth and they realize. They think there's like, just only the have fun thing, poor crowd. Yeah. They think that's Bitcoin. Whereas there's all these, there's so many different segments. There's, there's, you know, there's, there's VCs, there's, there's cypherpunks, there's investors. There's our environmentalists now. There's environmentalists. There's, there's, a, there's so many different communities within, there's no Bitcoin community. There, there's some shared values uh, in some blaze, and there's kind of OGs, but it's, it's gotten big enough that there's no one thing anymore. And I think that they, some macro analysts don't fully realize that. I think it's it's unique in terms of you need some technical depth to get it, right? You don't need to be a computer scientist. I would challenge
1: that thesis. Yeah, You don't need it. You don't? <laughs> you don't. I've got away with it for five years. But you've put a lot of time into it. Yeah, I still don't have any technical depth. I don't have
0: programming depth, but I think it's, when you understand things like bandwidth and storage, yeah. for example, you start to see... Basically, someone has to be able to explain technically why Bitcoin is more decentralized than Dogecoin or Ethereum. I think I can do like that. that. I can manage yes. that one. Yeah, someone needs a certain degree of technical depth to get there, and then they need economic depth. And I think that there's intersections that just make it complicated. And it also goes against current understandings of how money works, and people get threatened by it.
1: Well, listen, we're super lucky to have you. Me, Danny, and Jeremy are super lucky to sit down with you every month or so and have these conversations. Uh, I learned so much from you. Please do go and check out Lynn's amazing newsletter. It's so ridiculously cheap. She's getting all embarrassed in front of me right now. It's like 199 bucks for a whole year, and each month is like a whole depth of knowledge. Go and check it out. Lynn, thank you so much. Can't wait to see us again. Thanks for having me. Bye. Okay. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing to do is head over to What Bitcoin Did Telegram channel. And if you want to support the show, all we ask is you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review.